This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Vanessa Garcia, a multidisciplinary artist who just published her first novel, White Light, which includes some of her paintings on the pages. Garcia is a journalist, essayist, playwright, novelist, and visual artist. She was born to Cuban parents in Miami, Florida. Garcia's novel, White Light, tells the tale of Veronica Gonzalez, an artist who was offered her first gallery exhibit on the eve of her father's death. Torn between mourning, pursuing her art, and her tumultuous relationship, Veronica is struggling to make sense of her life and her longings. We began the interview discussing why Garcia focused on a novel amidst her other artistic endeavors. I had written other novels before that I'm really grateful never went out into the world because they were sort of like the practice novels. But this novel I wrote as my my father had just passed away and I was literally entering my MFA program at the University of Miami the day after my father died. And because people go into this kind of shock, at least I did, and you just sort of go about your day, I went to class the next day. And I showed up and the chair of the department wrote me an email when I got home and was like, please don't come back for the rest of the week. You know, you need to just be at home and mourn and not be in class. And so I stayed home for for a week and immediately I started writing this book. And it's not autobiographical, but there is the death of a father and there is material that's drawn from life. But for me, it was sort of figuring out the mourning process through writing this book. And I just, I woke up every single day at five or six in the morning and wrote until 9 a.m. And I did this for two years straight. And I don't think I missed a day writing this particular book. So uh, there was a lot going on when I was when I was writing this. If you could see this sort of alternate life where you hadn't written it, do you think that was integral in your mourning process? For me, definitely. Um, I don't know. I, I really don't know what I would have done. It was really interesting because a lot of, you know, a lot of the MFA conversation all the time was, oh my God, writing is so hard. I have to sit down to write and to sit down to the blank page and I have to solve this drama about writing, you know? Um, I feel like anyone who's been in any writing program or any writer's group or around writers, when it becomes part of your life, it's work, you know? So um, people get into this complaining mode. And I remember just thinking all the time, if I didn't have this book in the morning, I don't know what I would do. So for me, it was a real saving grace. It was the opposite at that time. The basic premise of White Light is there is a main character, Veronica, and she is primarily a painter. And she um, experiences the death of her father, who is very obese, which contributed to his death. And she has a sister and a mother that she's very close to. And as she's experiencing this death, she just got her first solo show at Art Basel. So she has this pressure to create maybe the best work of her life. And yet she's mourning and can't move forward. Can you talk about the the painter aspect of Veronica and what that meant to you as a writer and why that was the skill that you gave her on this journey? Yeah, I feel like with um, Veronica, I wanted to I wanted her 
to speak a very a different language than I did in the sense of like I wanted it to be a visual language that she spoke. Um, I wanted her communication to be one that was very different and her understanding of things to be very, very different than than someone who writes. So I didn't want to make her, you know, a writer or, you know, I don't know, a screenwriter or something like that. I wanted her to have a kind of different, um, I don't even want to say sensibility. I want to really say vocabulary because it's just a very different way of, of looking at the world. And I mean, I have, I've painted, so I definitely drew from, from my own experience in the visual arts. You know, I live part of the year in, in, in Miami, which, which does have Art Basel, Miami Beach, which is an absolutely sort of like storm of a festival, of an art festival that happens. Um, and I wanted to set her in that world as sort of someone who was really just on the brink of of making it as an artist. Regardless, I feel like all of us know what that is, whether we're artists or we're working on some kind of career path. We know exactly what that means to be at that tipping point and at that brink of turning over. And I really wanted her to be there when something just awful happens and derails what she thinks is this past, but I mean, in the end, I feel like it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of coming of age story, but of someone in their twenties, who's really not just coming of age, but coming into her own as a woman. And in this case, it's as a woman in the art world. Well, one of the things that's interesting about your book too, is that there's plates in it of Matisse's of your own work. Uh, the chapters are organized in the second half of the book by color, um, by the color that the artist is using. So the chapters might be called indigo or red, and there's a splash of that color. So that Mm -hmm. costs more to publish. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the huge things. Um, This book initially, it went everywhere. It went, you know, I had an agent who was sending it all over the place, and I got two things um, back. A lot of people really liked the book, but one of the, one of the, um, things that I got back was, who is this person? We don't know who she is. Like, you know, this sort of like, hang on. It's sort of this fear that happens. And then the second one was based on the color that's that's in the book because it's very expensive to to publish something like that. And you're simply not going to make as much money um, as a publisher off of a book that you have to spend so much money printing. Also, and licensing, because there are are plates of, of Icarus, of Matisse's Icarus, of Picasso's Guernica, my own work, and then there's flashes of color, literally, that start the chapters. And a lot of, the, I got several um, editors that said, you know, if you remove the color and you remove the plates and you remove this and you remove that, and we'll, we'll look at um, another draft of this. And I thought, okay, but that's not my book anymore. It just really is not the book. It's not Veronica's journey. It's not this protagonist's journey at all. So I, I said no to that. Um, initially, which I feel like it was a hard thing to do because you're you're this first-time novelist and you really want to get this book out there, but not to the extent at which it's a completely different, a completely different book. Um, so, so that was part of it. I was incredibly lucky to find Shade Mountain Press, um, who was run by an editor named Rosalie Morales-Kearns, was just a kind of, I mean, she's amazing. She took this project on and wanted to put the book out that I wanted to put out. And the editing process with her was just, it was brilliant. I can't say enough good things about her. She's amazing. And what she's trying to do in the book publishing world is, is also wonderful because her mission is to publish 
the writing of um, female writers working in literary fiction. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Vanessa Garcia, author of the novel White Light. You're Cuban-American. Do you feel like you're represented in the literary world? I went to a conference called Las Comadres Conference in New York, and it was specifically about Latina and Latino writing and how we don't have enough of it. I mean, we definitely do not. And and mostly, and this is the most interesting part of it, um, it, it was about publishing houses saying, yeah, we don't have enough of it, but when we acquire it, somehow we don't know how to market it and we don't know how to sell it. And I think that one of the huge problems is that um, there is an attempt to sell it as Latino or Latino lit to a Latino and Latino audience. And I think that's a massive mistake. Um, Being Cuban American is just part of the American experience. And I think it needs to be sold to the general public, to the mainstream and, and targeted as a novel. There is this as a new novel where, where, Perhaps it's the themes that you're trying to to market to a particular group of people with interest, the way that every other book is marketed. So I definitely think there's an underrepresentation, but I also think that the the fracturing and the sort of compartmentalizing and the attempting to to separate the experience is the big mistake because um, because as I said, it's just a part of the American experience. I don't think about this book as a Cuban American novel. I think about it as a novel. And the protagonist happens to be Cuban-American. I think there's a, a longing in this book that I, mm-hmm. I think must be, I mean, it's not at all unique to the Cuban-American experience. But if you're, mm-hmm. if you're an immigrant from a different country that you can actually go back to, it yeah. seems like there's a different feeling. And in this character, and I'm sure in your own life, there's a sense of longing for something that's truly lost. That not that just that you can't go back to Cuba, but it's not really the Cuba that you want to go back to. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I can talk about this for like miles and miles. I mean, the the next book that I'm writing is um, specifically about. Um, it's called My Cuban Roots, and it's it, that one is nonfiction, and it's. Roots is spelled R-O-U-T-E-S, so it's like all the alternate routes I have had to take to get to where I'm from, to get to Cuba, because I haven't been able to get there because of economic and familial embargoes that have been in place. And I feel that, yes, there is an immense amount of longing that is, um, I don't know if it's genetically encoded in the next generation or it's just passed on, but it's definitely there in the sense that Literally, with Cuba being Cuban, um, you are from a place that you cannot go to. And even when you can go to it legally, there is this sort of what what I always call this familial embargo of the family trying to hold you back from going to a place that was so hard for them to escape from at a particular moment in time. And also the disconnect between what Cuba's reality is and what it is in the popular consciousness as a kind of... Um, tourist spot, even now as Aperture is beginning to happen. So I think that that longing is absolutely embedded in the Cuban-American experience in a different way, perhaps, than than other immigrants, but I think also that it is part of the immigrant experience. And then, you know, there's another kind of longing that I think belongs to all immigrant experiences, which is which is sort of rising up and, and getting ahead somehow and being of a second generation and doing everything that your parents couldn't do. And there's all this just like 
innate drive that that somehow links or parallels itself um, with longing, um, which is pretty interesting. And I absolutely see that in Veronica, even though I don't think she directly ever talks about it. It's just sort of in her nature. Well, let's talk more about Veronica's character. There's a lot of things, a lot of people she's associated with this book, so it's not just the Cuban-American experience. She has a good friend that's back in New York that's really struggling with the loss of a brother over 9-11, and then her her own journey is this, this disconnect that she had with her father. So there's a lot of connections that she has to loss in general, with Veronica, particularly, I think that this idea of a loss, the seed of it, exists because of um, this emptiness where perhaps she feels the relationship with her father should have been or should have been larger or should have been. And larger is kind of the paradox because the father is this kind of larger than life figure. Literally, he's obese, but also he's he's kind of a violent person and he has a very, um, he has kind of an explosive personality, but he's also extremely charming. And so it's this irony where it's this huge person, but the place where he's supposed to be in her life is empty. And so, and even when, when he's alive, um, that place is empty or, or just sort of a minute where, where it should be more. And so I think this, this initial place of, of, of loss sort of drives or, makes her see loss in a different way. Um, so she connects to someone like Leo in the book who has lost his brother during 9-11 by some freak accident because it's not that he was working, that Leo's brother was working, you know, in at in the towers at the time, you know, on Wall Street or whatever. He wasn't a trader. He wasn't anything of the sort. He wasn't working for some big corporation. He had just gotten a job as a messenger, you know, delivering and he had to deliver that day, and he dies suddenly. So there are all these kind of disconnects in the book that I think that sort of spiral back to the experience of Veronica with her with her father and what that relationship should be and what it is and what it isn't. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Vanessa Garcia, author of the novel White Light. Can you talk a little bit more about the obesity factor? I feel like it's something that we don't talk about in America in terms of we talk about it in the news, but we don't really talk about that much about what it feels like to either be or be obese or have an obese family member. I mean, you, you experience that in real life as well as your character. I will say that that is one of the things that I did draw. As I said, some of the things about the father in this in this book are drawn from life. And one of them is that my father was obese and he did die of complications due to his obesity. But also it's true. It's exactly true what you're saying. This idea of that we see obesity as this, you know, um, big sort of social problem. It's kind of like an idea, but we don't actually talk about what it's, what it's like on, on a day-to-day life level, um, how it affects the people around you. I remember very clearly I, being in a in a car with my father and being afraid because one of the things that would happen was because he was so obese he couldn't sleep very well at night because you can't breathe very well and when he would be driving he would just doze or fall asleep at the wheel this would happen constantly and there was such a stress as a kid watching him drive 
and watching him be in that car and knowing that any second he would fall, you know, like fall into sleep and what was going to happen. And your brain just spirals into this possibility of, you know, crashing off the side of the road. I remember once veering off the side of the road because of that. And that's just one tiny example of, of what, of what that does, you know, not only to, for example, me as a kid watching my father, but to a family. I mean, I think about what my mother must have gone through daily. Um, so many, I mean, she took him to so many programs where she would actually join the programs with him, you know, like dieting programs, um, even though she was not obese in any way. Um, and she would join them with him to, to have some kind of support. But, you know, it it was so hard to deal with because particularly with him, there was so much emotional and sort of psychiatric, I think, like um, things that needed to be worked out in therapy that were instead being worked out um, or attempted to be dealt with in, in, the, in his relationship with, with food, which, which wasn't about food at all, but all of the issues and, and sort of the baggage that he was carrying that was somehow representing itself physically. It was like you could see the weight of everything that he was carrying. So, I mean, there's just so much to it, apart from, you know, you live in America. I think at some point in the book I say, um, you know, if he if he had stayed in Cuba, you know, he definitely wouldn't be this man. He wouldn't be this, this obese man. And not just, yes, because of all of the sort of the emotional baggage that I just talked about, but also because um, we live in in a country where it's where we're constantly being fed uh, the the wrong stuff basically and and it's so easy to to go in that direction and just all these ironies about um, food deserts and somehow being being hungry and still being obese and the kind of of things that we are ingesting so I mean there's a lot wrapped up in in having an obese character in the book but also in real life have having someone obese in your family. And for Veronica, that really trickled down to her own body image. And it's mm-hmm. funny because her boyfriend called her gordita. Yes. Which is <laughs> yes. like little fat, kind of. Yeah, it's it's a very common term in Spanish. Um, but I definitely thought it needed to be in there because it's so ironic. Um, it's like, oh, you know, my little fat one, you know, come here, my little chubby fat one. And, and Veronica's definitely... In the book, um, her she's very very uh, skinny. Um, she has a kind of reverse reaction to her father and decides to go. Um, she doesn't decide to go, but I feel like she has. She goes in the other direction and at some point has um, eating disorders that are you know anorexia and bulimia related, and um, she deals with with her life, her earlier life in in that way. And then and then yeah, she has this boyfriend who ends up calling her. Gordita, which you know, in Latin culture, it's like it comes from. Obviously, if you you know, it's that sort of old school. If you're if you have a little meat on your bones, you're healthier, and you know, you're eating well, and you have more money, right? So it's a good thing. But obviously, in her case, it's just this big irony that that plays out kind of bizarrely. So one of the things I was wondering when I read this, I've been in conversations with writers of different cultures, and we end up talking about it a lot, is when you put in the foreign language to to most readers who are, are who speak English, but to you, it's not a foreign language, Spanish, you do have a lot of Spanish in here, and you don't translate it. And I'm wondering about the thought that goes into 
what is going to be in Spanish, what you decide to explain the meaning of, and what you just pass over. I think there is thought that goes into that in the sense that you know, you know that that some things might not be understood, but I think that that's just more realistic. When you're talking to somebody who is from Miami, there is a constant code switching going on in this city, in the city, which is absolutely um, a city of, of immigrants. And there's, there's constantly this English and Spanish that's, that's happening. And there's way, there are ways to do this. So someone like Juno Diaz will, will have the Spanish in there. He won't even italicize it because it's all the same conversation. It's all in the same language. I decided that I did want to italicize it because I think that in my generation, there is a kind of, it's not that it's a conscious code switching, but it's a different kind of code switching in language than someone from, that was, for example, born in Cuba, that does it very differently. And so they are still two worlds that you're just going, you're jumping back and forth between. And so for me to italicize it was a decision to italicize the Spanish words, but not to explain them because that would seem utterly real, unrealistic in terms of, I'm not going to sit in the middle of a sentence and tell you the translation of the thing that I am saying. And also contextually, you could sort of pick up what it means. And if you don't pick up what it means, then you can pick up a dictionary. If you don't want to, that's totally okay, because it's part of the experience of, of talking to someone like Veronica, who has this back and forth and is, who is going to throw in a Spanish word here and there, and is going to throw in more than one or two if they're talking to family. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Vanessa Garcia, author of the novel White Light. So tell me a little bit about your influences when you sat down to write this book in particular. What writers influenced you and can you read a passage from one of them? There are two writers that for me you know, people ask, you know, what are your favorite books? And those are very different than what are the books that actually influenced you? Because they're not necessarily the same. These two books that, that for me influenced me were Reynaldo Arena's uh, The Assault and um, James Salter's The Light Years. And I read them, I will say I read them when I was, you know, like 15, 16. And I just remember for the, the, the paragraph that I'm going to read is from James Salter's uh, the light years. And it was, I remember reading it and it just changing my brain chemistry and thinking, Oh, like you can do this with writing. You can actually do this. It just, I remember reading the first page and just stopping and thinking, Oh my God, it blew my mind. And then once I finished the book coming to this realization that this first paragraph of the entire novel was kind of this blueprint for the whole novel. And that it wasn't about gliding on the water it was about this relationship that the book is about. It just that kind of thing uh, from from those two books just have have stayed with me always. So I, I'll go ahead and and read the the first paragraph. This is the opening paragraph of The Light Years by James Salter. We dashed the Black River. Its flats smooth as stone. Not a ship. Not a dinghy. Not one cry of white. The water lies broken, cracked from the wind. This great estuary is wide, endless. The river is brackish, blue with the cold. It passes beneath us, blurring. The seabirds hang above it. They wheel, disappear. We flash the wide river, a dream from the past. The deeps fall behind. The bottom is paling the surface. We rush by the shallows. Boats beached for winter, desolate piers. 
and on wings like the gulls soar up, turn, look back. The day is paper white. The windows are chilled. The quarries lie empty. The silver mine drowned. The Hudson is vast here, vast and unmoving. A dark country, a country of sturgeon and carp. In the fall, it was silver with chad. These geese flew overhead in their long shifting Vs. The tide flows in from the sea. The Indians sought, they say, a river that ran both ways. Here they found it. The salt wedge penetrates as far in as 50 miles. Sometimes it reaches Poughkeepsie. There were huge beds of oysters here, seals in the harbor, in the woods, inexhaustible game. The great glacial cut with its nuptial bays, the coves of wild celery and rice, this majestic river. The birds, like punctuation, are crossing in level flight. They seem to approach slowly, accelerate, pass overhead like arrows. The sky has no color. A feeling of rain. Do you want to say anything else more about that? I, I remember reading that first paragraph and saying, oh my God, he's opening the book like this. He's opening the book like this in this explosion of imagery and water. And and just like you can feel the, gliding on the water. You can feel everything that's beneath the water. You can feel the air around. You can feel the sky above. And you can feel that everything is on the surface somehow, but that there's all of this depth that exists that's sort of playing upon that surface. And that's exactly what happens in the book. There is this relationship that is so superficially gliding along. And then there are all these, like, um, there's all this other stuff that's sort of bubbling under the surface that's, that's starting to come up in the book. And it's just, for me, it was just, it was a magical thing to read. How about if you can read something that you wrote? It could be something you found tricky or something that you changed a lot, something that you are happy with. I'll just read the, the first, basically what's the, the first part of the novel, because as I was talking about, it just it was something that kept changing. And it was something that I kept having to go back to and say, you know, what is the blueprint for, for my book? Like, what is what am I mapping out here? in the beginning um, and coming to what that map was while still engaging and sort of bringing the reader in or sort of raveling what was later to be unraveled. You know, it's probably one of the hardest things to do. It's not that I would say it's the best paragraph of the book, but I think it is, um, you know, it was the hardest for me to, to sort of get right or do what I wanted it to do. So I'll read the, the beginning. Sometimes you wake up with a hole in your heart and you're not sure why. It's a circle carved by something you can't touch, something that opens up in your sleep and wakes you up hungry. This morning, before I got on the plane, it was like that, like those lagoons left by old erupted volcanoes. They pull things and people into them because the core of the earth, after it shoots out its molten lava, is as hungry as I am. My nerves are shot, as if the ends of them have brushed up against coca leaves and are standing on edge now porcupine-like, pricking me under my skin. Must be why I've had on-again, off-again goosebumps since last night. I can't come back with nothing. If something big doesn't happen on this trip, I'll have to leave Tony, leave town, go back to school, teach. God, please don't make me a high school art teacher. My poor mother doesn't even know where I am. My sister either. I'm sick of bringing them down from the almosts and maybes, the nearly solo shows, the hairline fractures between me and success, that line between being a total loser and being a successful artist, 
I'm starting to hate that word, artist. It's embarrassing. That's that. You want to say anything more about that? I just felt like in that first paragraph, I needed to map out the sense of loss that we've been talking about, the sense of loss that happens even before she even really loses the father in, in the book. Um, her her desires and her, her sort of deep anxiety um, about making it. And then also, you know, Tony had to be introduced, this idea of, of color and, and this hole in the heart. There were so many things that I felt like um, I just wanted to, to sort of place there, like, here's this little br- blueprint of the of the world we're going to walk through right now. So I was just, that's what I was trying to do. Anyway. Where do you write? I move around from coffee shop to coffee shop, cafe to cafe. I have in Los Angeles, I have my little spots. And in Miami, I have my little spots. Um, and for me, the important thing is I have discovered is to move throughout the day. I can't stay in one place writing the whole time because I get into this like kind of default setting and this way of writing that's just sort of monotonous. So, But I find that if I switch location immediately, my brain, it triggers something in my brain and I just, I, I can get into a new flow. So I've found that if I move around a lot and I, I, it's better for me. And also I write really well, well in airports. And so when I have a flight, I get there really, really early and I, and I, and I write in the airport. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really get away from writing. I don't know how to do that yet. Maybe that is something that I can acquire, but, um, I don't, I don't get away from writing. I mean, I was trying, I'm trying to think of of a place or a time or something that I could possibly do that, and I and I can't think of one. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writers group. There's about four or five of us, depending on whether one of us is sort of like you know drifting somewhere else at the time or, or has something that they they can't get to writers group. But um, there's a core of us that's about four or five, and we we don't meet uh, you know like every week or anything, but we try to meet as often as we can. Um, at some point, we were meeting monthly. Sometimes it's every two months if we can't do it monthly. Um, but it's a writer's group that's kind of invaluable to me because when you're working on something and you don't know, you know, is this doing what I need it to do? How is, how are you, how is someone else going to read this? Um, is it succeeding? Is it the beginning of something? Should I toss this to what's happening? Um, it's, it's a really good place. To, to to sort of experiment and it's a safe place and there there are they are other writers so that they know what that's like that's who I show my stuff to first. How have you dealt with rejection? When I was really young, I used to deal with it poorly, but I think that if you don't get um, used to rejection, which is completely a part of the writer's life, then um, I mean you just sort of have to you have to come to terms with it. So I remember I used to keep my rejection letters when they used to come still in that form, you know, used to get postcards or or actual letters. Um, And then at some point, I remember I was moving um, from an apartment in New York and I had all of these rejections. And I was like, why am I keeping this? There were like trash bags and trash bags of these things. I'm like, why am I keeping these things? It's just such bad energy. I just need to get rid of all of this. And ever since that move, I just, I get a rejection and I delete it. And if it requires a, um, thank you so much for, for reading and responding. Then I send that off and I forget about it. I do not dwell on it because if you dwell on it, I think, I mean, you can easily die as a writer if you dwell on all the rejections. Just delete and move on and resubmit to someone else. And what is your favorite word? So my favorite word is not a, it's not like a $10 word. It's more like a five cent word, <laughs> but I love it. Um, it's swift. 
because for me, it's more about association. When I write Swift, I think of like Hermes and his um, winged ankles and sort of this like messenger, um, at, which makes me then associate to Achilles and this like mortality, this mortal ankle and the complications of that. And so there's all this sort of stuff apart from the fact that it's kind of onomatopoeic and, and lovely. Um, Swift. I love it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Vanessa Garcia, author of the novel White Light. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.